Washington podcast presented by the Institute for Energy Research. To find out more about our work, visit our website at instituteforenergyresearch.org. Welcome back to the Plugged In Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Stevens. I'm a policy analyst here at the Institute for Energy Research. And my guest today is Hayden Ludwig. Hayden is an investigative researcher at the Capital Research Center. He's a native of Orange County, California, and holds a master's of public policy from George Mason University. Hayden, welcome to the show. I'm glad to be with you, Alex. Thank you. Very excited to have you on today. To um, You've written quite extensively about uh, the funding and impact of environmental groups uh, here in Washington, D.C. and sort of across the U.S. So be really interested to hear what you have to say about uh, where the funding comes from and sort of how a lot of these groups operate. You start by giving listeners some context as to how much money flows to uh, environmental organizations that are involved in politics and um, how that compares to sort of other prominent political causes in the U.S.? Yeah, well, I, I would say that it's in the hundreds of millions of dollars, if not the billions over the last, you know, 40, 50 years, especially, but easily in the hundreds of millions of dollars every year. It's, it's um, you know, I think I, empirically looking at it, I think the environmental movement is one of the best funded political movements in the country, but it's not usually represented that way. Mostly uh, it's represented as uh, big oil taking on these these poor plucky little activist groups, but in reality, they, these are, um, you have your, you have your poor activist groups, sure, but in reality, most of these groups are very wealthy with, with large offices in Washington, D.C. that cost them a mint, and I would say that, so one of the things that Capital Research Center does in, in Washington is we, we basically track money from major liberal foundations and donors to activist groups on pretty much every other issue you can think of, and labor unions as well. And uh, we've always been tracking environmentalist groups, and I can tell you it's one of the single largest um, issue areas in terms of the number of people that are that are a part of it and the amount of money that goes into it with the singular cause of basically pushing an environmental ideology on the country. Yeah, so you mentioned that you guys track labor groups um, as well, and uh, something that you've brought up quite a bit in your work um, and it seems to be something that we all notice as well, and I think is pretty evident probably to the listeners as well. Um, there's a lot of overlap a lot of times between uh, funding for environmental groups and then other uh, sort of popular progressive causes. Would you like to talk a little bit about the uh, connection there and um, how um, funding for environmental, I guess, ideas or projects and stuff, how that overlaps and often the policy proposals and things that come out of that coincide with other progressive causes? Yeah, well, I, I think one of the interesting things about environmentalism, one of the things that kind of attracted me to studying this area of politics is that for some reason, most people seem to think of environmentalism, uh, you know, global warming and pollution of air and water and these sorts of these sorts of issues in a vacuum. They don't tend to associate them with um, any other issue area, whereas I think people can understand that if you're, you know, so-called progressive or conservative or libertarian, you know, you have a more more or less consistent worldview about things like abortion and freedom of speech and these different things that kind of run together. But for some reason, they don't seem to extend it to the environmental sphere. But in point of practice, 
part of my job, at least before COVID anyway, involved going to the Supreme Court and the Congress to cover various um, left-wing um, uh, riots and – well, I shouldn't say riots – protests at that point. Now they're riots. Um, protests over things like the confirmation of Justice Brett Kavanaugh of the Supreme Court, so not just environmental things. But what I'd find is invariably you'd find the Sierra Club or Greenpeace or um, you know all, all these major left-wing environmental groups preaching things like abortion rights, preaching things like labor rights, just as loudly as the Service Employees International Union and Planned Parenthood. So in other words, there's this united front on the left, and it's almost irrelevant whether you're a gay marriage group like the Human Rights Campaign or you're the nation's largest abortion provider like Planned Parenthood or you're simply a labor union or whether all you care about is you know who which judges sit on the courts like a group like Demand Justice or People for the American Way. They basically all chant each other's position, and it's my theory that I spent a lot of time studying Margaret Sanger, who was the founder of Planned Parenthood. Um, it's my theory that actually Sanger is one of the first people to introduce the left to this idea, where it seems to be that left-wing groups either advance altogether, that is, the entire left gets something, like every everybody gets a piece of the pie for their particular little agenda area, or they don't advance at all. And, and I think that's really valuable because they basically um, – the, the way the left operates – at a 30,000-foot level, is a set of more or less disconnected single-issue groups that operate in this massive coalition, and they can't get 100% of what they want, right? But if they can get 5% of what they want, and everybody gets 5% of what they want, it's better than nothing. And so they seem to all operate in this, this coalition mindset, which is why I think you'll find um, that they'll all support each other's causes. It's it's a little different on the conservative side, for instance. You know, you find that um, conservative groups will often support each other, but more because there's there's an intellectual consistency between. Well, I'll give you an example: the way you see um, the sanctity of human life, right? Pro-life groups tend to be pretty conservative on the issue of capital punishment because they see a, see a, they see a consistency in the way government ought to treat human life under the Constitution's provisions for the protection of, of life and liberty. Um, but on the left, I think it's much more cynical than that. Yeah, and I think an important part, I guess, of this then is, um, as you mentioned there, that you know they're building these coalitions, and obviously there's some individuals or some foundations and things that stand out more than others in uh, the process of sort of building those coalitions. From your perspective, could you highlight some of the more interesting uh, donor groups, and what about these particular organizations um, to you do you think our listeners would find uh, most interesting? Why should they be paying attention to them? Um, I think in the environmental movement, Tom Steyer is the name that ought to come to mind because Steyer, he ran for president in 2020 on the Democratic ticket. I didn't didn't do very well. Uh, Tom Steyer is a, is a San Francisco ultra-liberal. He, he actually made a lot of his money in the hedge fund industry, specifically investing in oil and natural gas companies. So he's, <laughs> it's a, there's a lot of hypocrisy at stake here. And um, Steyer has he, – he's one of the biggest funders of the environmental movement. He and his wife have a number of nonprofits that they fund their money through. Tomcat Charitable Foundation or Charitable Trust is probably the biggest of all of these. But he's kind of just the front man, the guy who is 
is known for basically you know making his bones with the environmental stuff. But if you if you look at the foundation side, there's so many foundations that aren't very well known at all. Um, I think my favorite example is the Energy Foundation. Energy Foundation is based in San Francisco, and it's it's really what it is is a a conglomerate of money, an endowment from a handful of other liberal foundations, which are probably more familiar, like the Rockefeller Family Foundations, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the Pew Charitable Trusts. So it's basically a – it's been around for about 30 years, and it's this huge pass-through for other foundations to move money into Energy Foundation, which then distributes the money to, to other and activist groups. And I think the way they, the reason they do this is because it allows them to kind of obscure where the individual dollars go and where they come from, so that guys like me who who spend a lot of time trying to trace this stuff, the best I can say is, well, I know a bunch of donors put money into this pot, and I know a lot of money came out of this pot, but I could never tell you one to one that this particular dollar that benefited Greenpeace came from this particular donor. Yeah, so it really. Sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. Well, I was just going to say, it's interesting when you look at Energy Foundation that, you know, like you said, there's money flowing into this organization, but then you'll see something like, um, I don't know if this is necessarily an example, but just f- for the sake of the thought experiment, like r- the Rockefeller Foundation will give money to the Energy Foundation, which will give money back to the Rockefeller Foundation. So it's not just like one way that money is flowing into the Energy Foundation, it's a bunch of people giving to the Energy Foundation, and then it's like going back out to other groups. It's um, so there's some sort of exchange that's going on there that is yeah, it's a interesting lot of and confusing. Yeah, yeah it, it just makes the whole thing kind of a like a big web of of money flow, which really just you know obscures and, and complicates it for people trying to to trace all this. Um, but there's even groups like the the Hewlett Foundation, the William and Flora. Uh, William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, excuse me, is the full name. And this is, if, if Hewlett sounds familiar, it's the um, the William Hewlett who, along with Packard, founded Hewlett Packard. He's dead now. Both actually the Packard and the Hewlett Foundations are major left-wing foundations these days. Well, the Hewlett Foundation isn't necessarily only environmentalism. It's, it's like the Ford Foundation. It, it funds a lot of different causes. But one of the causes that I found Hewlett money and Energy Foundation money in a lot is with a group I call the eco-right. These are basically self-identified conservative environmentalists. And uh, the Niskanen Center, if you're familiar with that, is probably the best known of these. But they're basically groups of people who come from the libertarian and conservative side who agree with the left's basic premise that uh, global warming theory, that the world is getting hotter and carbon dioxide and humans are to blame. And so we have to we have to save off the apocalypse or else. And their their whole mantra is that, well, we could do it in a better way than the left. You know, we we believe in free market solutions to these things. But invariably their solutions are basically less extreme versions of what the left has already produced. And ironically, it's actually the left that says, well, these things won't do very much. You may as well have a Green New Deal if you're gonna buy off on our on our premise of, of our worldview here. And invariably, you find that these eco-right groups, whose jobs I think really are to infiltrate the conservative movement and spread what are really liberal ideas and rebrand them as free market, invariably these guys get funding from Hewlett Foundation and to a lesser degree, Energy Foundation. So groups that don't pretend to be conservative or even moderate 
are funding groups that pretend to be conservative or moderate. And it's just a big deception. Yeah. You know, there's an interesting trend that goes along with a lot of these groups that you're mentioning, you know, Hewlett and Rockefeller. And a lot of these foundations were were created by people who were successful in in industry or are successful in industry and now push for the types of regulations and increases in government discretion in uh, in business that in a different context, you know, may have blocked the sort of businesses that they created in the past. Yeah, um, right. And when it comes to like in- environmental regulation, it's interesting because we know that a big aspect of these regulations are that they increase compliant costs for everyone. Um, so possibly what they're doing is investing in making it more difficult for people to enter the markets that they are competing in with their businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think you raise a great point. Yeah, I mean, the, the truth of it is we call it the issue of donor intent um, because part of what, what capital research does is look at the history of philanthropy and because and you know funding of these organizations in the nonprofit sphere is just one aspect of the larger issue of philanthropy. And you'll find that, yeah, I mean, if you went back 100 years ago to the foundation of the Carnegie Foundation, right, it's called the Carnegie Corporation. If you go back to the Rockefeller Foundation, you go back to the Ford Foundation, all of the men who founded these things and endowed these foundations were captains of industry. A lot of them were very conservative Christians, but they all basically agreed on something, some kind of free market understanding of economics. And insofar as environmentalism existed, and not quite the same as it would be today, they would reject a lot of the ideas that are now funded by the foundations that bear their name. So their their original intent for their money has not been honored. And there's a reason for that. I mean, it's it's like Ford Foundation is this multi-billion dollar pot of money. And the left was very keen to take it over about 60, 70 years ago. And um, one, one of the big issues we see all the time is wealthy donors who don't enact proper safeguards for their money so that when they die, whoever succeeds them isn't restrained from basically violating their original intent for their money and just have to look at Carnegie, Ford, Rockefeller, the list goes on to see the kind of things that they fund today. And it's, I think they'd be ashamed to know that they're basically funding, like you said, the things that if we're, if, <laughs> if these rules were in place when they tried to get started in business, they may not have succeeded in business to begin with. You know, it's sort of interesting to see how philanthropies are responding to that. You see a lot of them now uh, putting limits on how long uh, like a donor foundation can operate beyond the death of the uh, person who started it. And um, so it does seem like these organizations are trying to prevent that from happening, hopefully in the future. Shifting focus a little bit here, uh, just last week, you had a pretty lengthy blog post about a group called Arabella Advisors. And an interesting thing that you highlighted in there is this idea of uh, them funding pop-up groups. Um, I think listeners would be interested in hearing about Arabella Advisors and then um, just a little bit more of a detailed explanation of these like pop-up groups and um, how they operate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think pop-up is the best best term for it because it really highlights how ephemeral these groups can be. Like you said, they can basically pop up with the speed of a website, and then when their attack campaign is finished, you just unplug the website, and it's gone. It's out of existence. So what Arabella is, Arabella Advisors is a for-profit company located here in Washington, 
But the key thing about them is they they call they call themselves philanthropy consulting uh, consultants. Basically, what that means they 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 are the consultants who help big foundations and big donors pretty much all on the left. I don't know of any conservative do- uh, client of theirs. Um, how do they advise them how to spend their money. But the key thing about Arabella is that the company has a set of four in-house nonprofits. We call these the sisters because they basically all have similar sounding names. The biggest two are called the New Venture Fund and the 1630 Fund. They have really generic names for a reason. It's kind of, I think, to detract attention from them. But basically, all of these four nonprofits together um, operate out of Arabella's offices. They have overlapping board membership with Arabella, the company's leadership. Um, in fact, they have hired the company. I use scare quotes when I say hired because it's it's legalese, but they basically pay for the company to house them and provide them services. So what I mean by all this is there's this network of these four Arabella groups that it's about $635 million in 2018, $635 million. So it's nothing small. And what these nonprofits do is they basically provide two services to the greater left. The first one is they operate as a pass-through. So kind of like the Energy Foundation, they basically exist to move money from lefty foundations and donors to other activist groups. That's why they they break in and pour out so much money, hundreds of millions of dollars every year. But the other service is actually sponsoring these pop-up groups. So what that really means is you have something like the New Venture Fund, which is this 501c3 nonprofit, and the New Venture Fund owns dozens of websites. We don't really know the exact number, but it's it's huge. And all of these websites pretend to be standalone nonprofits. So one of the groups that I know, for instance, um, is a group called Fix the Courts, and which is an ironic name because they mean it as let's repair the courts, but it sounds like we're fixing the court, right? Yeah. And what? And, I mean, you can't make this stuff up with these guys. But Fix the Court is a website that purports to provide research on how conservative Republicans are tampering with the Supreme Court and federal courts, how they're you know running roughshod over the Constitution, et cetera. Its real big thing was back in 2018. It tried to provide all this research into um, Brett Kavanaugh's supposedly shady background so that they could hopefully derail his confirmation of the Supreme Court as part of the campaign. Well, the Fix the Court is just a website. If you look them up on the IRS website, you won't find anything there. You know, you won't find them on nonprofit monitors like GuideStar, ProPublica, because they don't exist as a real organization. They don't own a pen. They don't have a board of directors. They are just a front for the Arabella-run New Venture Fund. Arabella has, it's run something like 340 of such pop-up groups. That's our best count. Um, And they go in and out of existence all the time. You mentioned the state's element. This is why this is so dangerous. In the 2018 midterms, we counted no less than 15 of these pop-up groups that are all, again, you go to their websites and they look like standalone nonprofits. They don't advertise their relationship back to Washington, D.C. or Arabella or the groups that run them. And nevertheless, they have names like uh, North Carolinians for a Fair Economy or Ohioans for a Fair Shot. I mean, really generic names like that. And you go to their websites, and all they were saying in the 2018 midterms was how awful Republicans were on health care, and they want to take your Obamacare away from you, so you need to support Democrats. 
it, there were 15 of these groups, and I actually went through a dozen of their websites, and they all had the same exact layout with a different color coat on their websites and slightly different names and logos. But it was pretty obvious it was one group that put all this stuff together. But if you lived in any of these states and you went to their website, you wouldn't know that, not unless you did all the research because they don't identify the relationship to each other or to the actual Washington, D.C.-based groups that run them. And I found these kinds of pop-ups all over the place. I know you're familiar with Pebble Mine out in Alaska. Yeah. I know IER has done a lot on Pebble Mine. Well, there was an Arabella group out there called Save Bristol Bay. I believe it's still in existence. It's been a while since I've looked at it. But Save Bristol Bay purports to you know, represent Alaskans stopping this, this darned mine from being built in the <laughs> Uh, over at Pebble. Well, in fact, it was run out of Washington, D.C., down the office from down the street from my office here. And I mean, look, if they can they can they can advertise their views all they like. But I find it rich that these groups are all purporting to be grassroots and, you know, spontaneous when they're all planned and paid for by the professional left. So that's basically Arabella advisors in a nutshell. Another thing that you've written on that goes a little bit beyond politics is the fact that some of these organizations seek to influence uh, institutions away from Washington, D.C. and away from politics. Um, specifically, I know you've written on uh, they're trying to influence sort of religious groups. Yeah, I call that the creation care campaign, um, and there's a reason why. So creation care is, is a it goes back to the early 90s, but it's basically the, the stamp for a set of religious doctrines that are purportedly Christian. Mostly they, they're targeting um, conservative Catholic and evangelical churches. But really what they are are a disguise for mostly secular environmental, um, environmental movement ideology, but with a biblical veneer on the top of it. So um, kind of the background on this, if you go back to the 90s, there was a, a real effort by the, the larger left to split off evangelical voters from the Republican Party, which is one of the GOP's you know, primary um, groups of constituents. And at first, they, they well, one of the, the ways they tried to do this was targeting global warming. Um, and there was a real sense back in the 90s, still is today, but at the time, there was a, there, there was a real sense that uh, conservative Christians see global warming as an issue created by the left for the left, and so they're going to reject it no matter what you say, scare tactics and all. And so the point of creation care, uh, which is still with us today, was basically to rewrite the issue of global warming to be something moderate. Well, how do we, you know, this isn't this isn't something for liberals. It's something for everybody. All Americans can agree on this. So surely you and the conservative movement can agree with us on this. It didn't really work. The way they tried to do this is there was um, a number of think tanks. The most prominent one is called the New America Foundation or just New America. And New America has, has written huge reports, and they've done all sorts of TED Talks where they're very explicit. They have a – they call a – and I'm quoting – a rent and evangelical model. It's very cynical. The whole point of this thing is basically to find mascots among conservative evangelical churches – uh, they had a Catholic version of this thing too, but I think the evangelical one is more prominent. To find mascots who are basically just pastors who they could either buy off or convince to support their global warming ideology. And as long as they framed it as scriptural, as biblical, they figured this would work. This would basically con convince all sorts of 
denominations to basically support Democrats' um, global warming legislation. And it didn't really work. They came out with all sorts of things like the Evangelical Climate Initiative around 15 years ago. And it basically declared that Christians need to make uh, global warming and things like mercury pollution from uh, coal-burning power plants. These are, these are pro-life issues. We need to expand our definition of pro-life. And it goes back to this idea of caring for creation from Genesis, um, making this a biblical mandate to basically support things that aren't biblical or at least are supported by groups that don't purport to be religious at all. And um, most people saw through it. It didn't, it didn't work very well. Well, they, they, start, they sparked this up again. Uh, we're in Creation Care 2.0 right now. When New America released this strategy guide basically five, five years ago about, okay, the first one didn't work, so what do we do now? And their conclusion was, well, it didn't work because we tried to convince conservatives that a left-wing issue is moderate. Instead, what we need to do now is not convince them that it's moderate. We need to convince them that global warming is actually a Christian mandate. It's actually a biblical mandate. And so what we can do is we can create this, um, quote unquote, transpartisan coalition between some people on the right and some people on the left that basically bypasses the political parties and gets something like a carbon tax or a cap and trade system, which are hallmark environmentalist uh, legislation, legislative goals, we can basically get these things put into into effect. Well, the idea of a transpartisan coalition, what that basically looks like is it kind of looks like um, the coalition that passed prohibition about 100 years ago. Not to get too much deep into the weeds here, but prohibition, I think, is a good example of it wasn't bipartisan in that the Democrats and the Republicans of the 1920s agreed that we really need prohibition. Rather, there was a, a, a strange alliance between, on the left, social engineering progressives, and on the right, ultra-conservative, teetotaling Christians. Um, and they, these groups that otherwise had nothing in common with each other agreed on this one issue, we, we need to get rid of alcohol in this country. And they basically went around um, asking everybody running for, con for Congress, for the presidency, all the way down to dog catcher, look, we don't care about any of your political views at all except for this one issue. Do you support prohibition or don't you? Well, that's basically the model for this creation care thing. Find conservative Christians who are convinced that global warming is not a left-wing scheme, but rather it's, it's, um, it's a deeply, uh, I guess, biblical mandate that we're destroying the earth and we have a duty to care for it. Um, how do we get those people on board with, yeah, like your typical Greenpeace activist, to bypass the parties and put this into practice. The creepy thing is, is no matter where you fall in the global warming issue, it's, there's no daylight between this largely secular environmentalist movement and what these creation care guys support. I mean, there's no daylight. It's, it's the one-to-one, -one, the same issues. I mean, they supported, um, for the most part, President Obama's clean power plan back in 2015, which got no support on the conservative side or the libertarian side. Uh, nevertheless, they tried to cast that as a biblical issue. And um, I think the worst part, the most damning part in my mind, is that the funders all come from the left. I mean, Energy Foundation, the Hewlett Foundation, the Ford Foundation, George Soros's Open Society Foundation. That it's the same people who fund the, the far-left radical environmentalists fund these creation care folks. So I guess my point is it's, it's these groups that are trying to politicize church to more or less muzzle 
what they see as conservative Christianity and, and basically subserviate it to whatever political agenda they have. Is there anything that we haven't covered here yet that you think our listeners would be interested in? And then where can people go to find your work? Well, I'll give you the websites first. We run uh, capitalresearch.org. That's capital with an A-L. We run that. That's where I post most of my, my content. But we uh, Capital Research Center also excuse me, runs a website called influencewatch.org, one word. And Influence Watch is our database on the left and anywhere that, that goes to left-wing funding, so including these eco-right groups I mentioned earlier. Uh, we have, we have uh, about 7,500 pages last, last time I checked. And they're full profiles. We vet and write everything ourselves from publicly sourced documents on who the funders are, who they're funding, what they're trying to accomplish, that sort of thing. So all your questions, uh, you the listeners that you have on groups like this, go to influencewatch.org, and chances are we have a full great profile on it. And we're always looking for for submissions and groups we've missed. You know, I would I would say um, I want to make one point that one of the things that drove me into researching environmentalism is the, the close proximity of historical environmentalism, the movement, with, um, with abortion and the various pro-life issues, I should say. Um, if you go back, as I have, the history of environmentalism goes back to about the 1960s and 70s, but the, the thoughts, the intellectual history that gave rise to the first coordinated environmental movement really go back a lot longer than that. I trace it all the way back to Margaret Sanger and the various eugenicists and stuff who are allied with them, because they basically came to the conclusion that we need to control the population if we're going to control things like the quality of our water, right? A hundred years ago, there was, there was a lot of smog in the air. If they're going to control these things, we need to control the population. That's, that's been a talking point of the eugenicist left for well over a century. And that basically bled into after World War II when, when uh, its association with the Nazis became pretty clear and that people didn't – they wanted to distance themselves from that. Eugenics died out, but this idea of controlling population or even depopulating the planet, it continued on and basically gave rise to the modern-day global warming, modern-day environmental movement. There's a guy named Paul Ehrlich, a professional biologist. He's still alive. And in the late 1960s, he wrote a book pretty famous called The Population Bomb. And he believed that by the 1970s and then later the 1980s, most of the world would have starved to death because imminent overpopulation was going to kill us all. Obviously, that, that never, never came to pass, and he, he was about 100% wrong. It was the other direction where actually there's more people on Earth, and they're living better than they've ever lived before. But this idea of overpopulation that started as a, a solution more or less – I say scare quotes with solution – to issues like abortion and women's health. It became, over time, the solution to things like global cooling and then global warming. And there was a piece in 2014 by The Atlantic, a pretty mainline liberal group, um, that basically pushed what they call um, family planning, which was Margaret Sanger's euphemism for abortion. She came up with this 100 years ago. Um, they, they pushed family planning as the solution to climate change that, quote, no one will talk about. So the, I find it fascinating that the professional left, when, when they are honest, they see no daylight between um, issues about life and, and um, liberty of individual people and things like global warming. That's my point earlier that I made is that people seem to regard these things in a vacuum, but they're not. They, they are so closely tied. And however your listeners feel about something like 
carbon dioxide as a pollutant or not, or whether the Earth is getting warmer or, or, or whether that's devastating to our future or not, um, you got to consider that if you accept one of these things, you accept all of them. And I've not found anybody who can, who can distance themselves from the, from the modern environmentalist global warming talking points and lose the connection going back all the way to this population control stuff because the two are, are joined at the hip. So I would just I would make that point very clear. You know, I I would just add to that that the, the point about eugenics, I think a lot of people would be tempted to say, well, that's never going to happen. But if you look in academic journals, there are examples of people proposing population control, I guess, you know, proposals for remedies to climate change, like you said. And even in our popular discourse, you have um, one example would be Bill Nye on his on his show um, yes. threw that idea out there, and it really didn't receive much pushback. Um, Richard and, Dawkins, the famous uh, the famous atheist, right? Richard Dawkins is is a famous climate change advocate. He tweeted about this last year, and I have to paraphrase him, but said eugenics works for pigs, cows, dogs, and roses. Why on earth wouldn't it work for humans? <laughs> I mean, it's, you couldn't put it more plainly than that. <laughs> and one other example would be actually in, in the California prison system, there is an example that I, I'll include in the show notes of eugenics actually being practiced by a state agency um, wow. as recently as I believe it was 2014. So, um, well, uh, let me yeah. make this one last point about that is, you know, if somebody could see that as a conspiracy theory and fine, I understand. But I think if you if you look at the if. If you look at honest environmental activists, you know, I think a lot of them have recognized this and will admit this. And the one that comes to mind is actually Michael Moore, the famous documentarian, no friend to conservatives, no friend to the quote-unquote anti-science movement. But I don't know if you watched this, but his most recent documentary, Planet of the Humans, came out earlier this year. It basically was a scathing denunciation of the professional environmentalist movement from a lefty perspective, not a conservative perspective. This is a guy who believes in man-made global warming. Uh, he believes that it's going to destroy the world if we don't do something about it. But he comes to the conclusion that the big problem with the professional environmentalist movement is that they've basically been bought and sold, and they're advocating for things like wind turbines and solar panels, which are not going to do the job, and they're not going to stave off global warming. And his solution he comes to in the movie is we've got to control the global population. So, you know, not my words. This is this is a guy of man of the left who who is well versed in all this stuff and believes it and is taken seriously by the left and his conclusion is population control. So if he comes to that conclusion, I don't know who, how we could come to a different conclusion ourselves. I think that's a good place to leave it. So my guest uh today has been Hayden Ludwig of the Capital Research Center. Hayden, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for your time, Alex.